Surah Fatah, Surah 48, Ayah number 10. A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Ar-Rajim, Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. Inna al-lazina yubayi'unaka innama yubayi'un Allah, yadullahi fawqa'idihim, faman nakatha fa'innama yankuthu ala nafsih, وَمَنْ أَوْفَى بِمَا عَاهَدَ عَلَيْهُ اللَّهِ فَسَيُؤْتِيهِ أَجْرًا عَظِيمًا It's in the reference to the bay'ah the Prophet took with the Sahaba for Uthman رضي الله عنه when the news of the rumor came that he was assassinated in Mecca that rumor was later disproved but the Prophet took a bay'ah, a pledge, for Uthman radiallahu in case he was assassinated. And this is the ayah that refers to that incident. Indeed, those who take a pledge with you, they are taking a pledge with Allah. Allah's hand is over their hands, and whoever breaks the covenant then indeed he is breaking it against himself. And whoever fulfills the covenant, fulfills whatever he has promised Allah to do, then indeed he will have a huge reward. Meaning Muslims should abide by their conditions. They must honor their word. And especially if it's a pledge, then they must honor the pledge. So this whole sequence of events, as you have heard previously about Hudaybiyah, is for all Muslims to abide by the pledge which they make with Allah and the Rasul. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't come down from the heavens to offer human beings a pledge. He sends the Rasul and the Rasul on behalf of Allah takes the pledge from believers. Very straightforward. You've done all the background information that you've had previously. And as you know, the Sahaba fulfilled their promise to the Prophet وسلم, and they went along with the, uh, the truce. They went along with the treaty, even though they weren't very happy with it to begin with. Anyway. The next set of ayat speak about people who were in Medina before the journey to Hudaybiyah. The Prophet asked them to come along, but they refused. They made excuses for whatever reason. So they were not participant in the Hudaybiyah affairs. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes mention of these people. Before this actually happens. So, this is a prophecy that the Prophet is being given uh, advance information and news about what will happen soon. And that is 
one of the uh, purposes of wahi, revelation, to give information before it happens. سيقول لك المخلفون من الأعراب شغلتنا أموالنا وهلونا فاستغفر لنا يقولون بألسنتهم ما ليس في قلوبهم قل فمن يملك من الله شيئا إن أراد بكم ضرا أو أراد بكم نفعا من كان الله بما تعملون خبيرا Indeed those who have stayed behind مخلفون those who lagged behind from the Bedouins, from the Arab, Arab referring here to the Bedouins, that they did not know, understand how warfare really works and how battles are won and so on. They were also lazy, so they stayed behind. So these people will say to you soon that it was our wealth and our families that preoccupied us. Shagalatna, that they preoccupied us and we didn't have the time or the, uh, the means by which we could remove ourselves from the obligation of our family members, which unfortunately is a common excuse for all Muslims nowadays. Family comes first and everything else comes later. So now seek forgiveness for us. Apologetic, but it was too late. Uh, for these people to come back to the path and be actually accepted. There were some who were genuinely repentant and uh, they were forgiven. And there are those who simply didn't care. If they did care, they only cared for the glory and the material wealth that Islam was going to bring. Mm. They say through their tongues what's not in their hearts. Meaning this is nifaq, this is hypocrisy. They say one thing and they do something else and they believe something else. More than not doing, it's about faith and about belief and so on. قُلْ فَمَنْ يَمْلِكُ مِنَ اللَّهِ شَيْئًا Say, O Muhammad sallam, that you have not understood tawheed yet, that who is now going to own and control anything? away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No one can control anything. No one owns anything besides Allah. So Allah owns you, he owns your wealth, he owns your family, he owns everything. So that's not our tawheed is based on this. In If he now has intended harm for you, who's going to move that away from him? Likewise, if he has intended benefit for you, how is anyone going to stop that from coming to you? So whether you are preoccupied with your wealth and your families, no harm and no uh, benefit can come to them. If Allah decides otherwise, this is the Tawheed 101. Hmm? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala controls everything, he owns everything, and he decides everything, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Okay, you don't have control over anything. What you do have control over is your decision. What is your decision? That's yours. You control it. And then Allah will rule and govern and judge based on your decision. The truth is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows everything. He's aware of everything that you do. So these, this ayah obviously comes after the ayah 
of bay'ah, taken a pledge with Allah, that the Sahaba took a pledge with the Prophet ﷺ, again about an unknown future, where they are trusting the Prophet ﷺ, they're trusting Allah, and saying, whatever happens, uh, this is our word, we'll do what it takes to get the job done. No, they don't know the future. Yeah, well, like Hijrah is now traveling to an unknown future, not to a known future. So they were traveling from Mecca to Medina, and their fate was unknown to them. They didn't know what's going to happen to them. So likewise here, when they took the pledge of uh, Ridwan, it's called Bayatul Ridwan, they didn't know what's going to happen about Uthman and about the, uh, whatever was going to happen afterwards. They had no knowledge of the treaty coming. So the munafiq doesn't rely on Allah. The munafiq relies on material substances and relies on the mundane cause and effect system. Okay. So we have another system which is also through cause and effect. The cause is Allah's will and the effect is whatever he wills. So you do need cause and effect, but it's not limited to the world, it's not limited to the dunya, to the mundane. You have to understand that it goes beyond the mundane. Sometimes you do things and they don't necessarily produce the results you want. That's because Allah's will is different from yours. So you can't start, stay there and start fighting with Allah's will. You're not going to change Allah's will because it's you who do, who's doing the action. So the munafiq needs to understand that the first message of the Prophet is about Tawheed, that Allah is one and he controls and he governs through his will, through his authority. And we are obligated to remain uh, submissive to his will. And Allah knows everything that you're doing anyway. بَلْ ظَنَنْتُمْ أَلَّنْ يَنْقَلِوَ الرَّسُولُ وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِيهِمْ أَبَدًا The fact of the matter is that when the call for moving, uh, traveling to Mecca for the Umrah was made, you believed that they will never return back to Medina. They thought that they would be annihilated and destroyed by the Quraysh. بَلْ ظَنَنْتُمْ You assumed and you believed that they will never, the Rasul and his people will never return back to their families ever. So you were stuck with your family and you believe that they will not be reunited with their families. More than that, this was decorated in your hearts, meaning that you actually love the idea that they will never return back home. And then you had a very evil thought, you had a very evil suspicion, you had a very evil understanding of how events will fall into place. Meaning that the thought, if it's evil, then obviously the consequences will eventually become evil also. And you became a destroyed nation. Your fate was sealed as soon as you believed that they will not return. Because again, the returning, not returning is not in your hands, is not in your speculation. It's in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's in Allah's will and Allah's authority. 
So they were doomed because of their false assumptions. And that's how the Munafiq is. Now that uh, destruction may come now, may come later. وَمَنْ لَمْ يُؤْمِنْ بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ فَإِنَّا عَتَدْنَا لِلْكَافِرِينَ سَعِيرًا Allah subhanahu gives the ultimate warning that uh, those people who don't believe in Allah and his Rasul, then for them we have prepared a very painful punishment. We have prepared for them fire, Sa'ira, fire in hell, that they will end up in that fire. Which, be, which will be a result of their own nifaq. Yeah, their own nifaq will translate into the fire on the Day of Judgment, and they will be there because they belong there. So this means, we have prepared. Uh, meaning that Allah's preparation is based on the cause of their nifaq. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Allah has already prepared Jahannam, but for these people, it is their nifaq and their hypocrisy that drives them to their ultimate destination. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared now pain and punishment, prepared pleasure and bliss. But who takes you there? It is you that decide whether you want to be here or you want to be there. Yeah, so this is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is addressing the munafiqun and those who did not respond to the need of the community, the need of the ummah, and the call of the Nabi, This is at a time when you must defend your boundaries and you must defend yourselves, and so on. You, know, you mustn't mistake it with the community calls sometimes after Jumu'ah. Those are very sporadic and they're not divinely guided. <laughs> Be careful. You don't assume anybody in the USA has the authority to call you to for jihad. Nobody has the authority. This is only when the Nabi and the Khalifa and the Hakim of a Muslim country says, then you respond this way. But circumstances are changing, and there might be a need to unite on certain ideas, certain principles in the community, even here in a non-Muslim country. And you should be wise enough to understand that if there's a need to do something for the community, then you should do it. And not say, oh, my family comes first. So, anyway, that's, again, another discussion for another time, inshallah. Allah subhanahu wa total dominion and his sovereignty and his kingdom expands way beyond the physical. To Allah alone belongs the kingdom of the heavens and the earth. But more than that, he has the divine prerogative to forgive and to punish, which is much more than material possession. There's a mundane component to the sovereignty of the heavens and the earth, and there's another dimension to this sovereignty, and that is the divine prerogative to forgive, which nobody has, and the divine prerogative to punish, which only Allah has. This is something higher than just ruling and governing people and so on. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will decide whom he punishes and whom he forgives, but that is through a system 
of uh, what you call it, a cause and effect through action and through intention and so on. He will not, uh, you know, punish anyone randomly. He may forgive anybody whom he wants. So punishment is through adal, justice, divine justice, not ours. And forgiveness is through divine fadl, prerogative. So for punishment, there has to be a system, there has to be a governance, there has to be an order, and it has to be kind of airtight. You can't punish anybody if he does not deserve to be punished. But forgiveness, there are no rules for divine forgiveness, except perhaps one, that is, he will not forgive shirk only because he says so. He informs us that he will not forgive shirk, so we have to believe that. But the divine has prerogatives that do not fall into our rational mind. That Allah can forgive whenever he wants to, whomever he wants to. And that is what Muslims must understand when they're doing things for the community and for the masjid and for everything else. You can't play God. You have to be able to tolerate mistakes. If you don't tolerate mistakes... Everybody will hate you, and they should, because you should be a tyrant. Hmm? This deen is based on the seer of the Prophet In the seer of the Prophet he was commanded to forgive the Sahaba for their mistakes. whom Allah says, forgive them, pardon them. So if you're doing anything for Islam anywhere, uh, on the planet, you must appreciate that you as a human being, you probably make more mistakes than the people you're condemning. That's the first rule. So perfectionism is an ideal, but it's not something that you can enforce. No one's perfect. No one can be perfect in this world. And that is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks to the Prophet so that he may forgive you for anything that you've done wrong, either previously or in future. So even the Prophet is not perfect. According to divine standards, the Prophet is not The Prophet is perfect according to his standards. According to human standards, he's perfect. But according to divine standards, no one's perfect. So for that to happen, the perfection is in Allah's forgiveness. Allah makes people perfect. He makes them perfect when he forgives them. So there's no sin and blemish. So when you're doing something for the community, as a rule, you must appreciate that people will make mistakes. And I believe they should make mistakes. That's just the divine order. Now, you check, you correct you remedy, you reform. And you have to forgive. Forgive the part of them. They made this catastrophic mistake of leaving their position in Uhud, which caused them to lose the battle. These 50 archers, they moved from their position, and the Muslims lost the battle of Uhud because of their mistakes. So Allah says, forgive them. That, in the military sense, is almost suicidal. How can you forgive somebody for that kind of mistake? So for Muslims, 
whether they're at home in their kingdom or their homes or whether they're anywhere else in their workplace, or any other you know, project that they're working on, they must appreciate before they start that people will make mistakes. It's the most normal thing to happen. So that divine prerogative, now you say, this one, now he, he did this, he did this, he did this. So they're angels who are assigned to giving punishment. They're very calculated. They work on hisab, one plus one equals two. The angels of punishment they roam around in the universe, and also in the divine kingdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the angels of punishment. And they will do exactly one plus one equals two. And they're angels of forgiveness also. So they're assigned to do what they're assigned to do. They won't budge because they're not invested emotionally with any prerogative of the divine. They do what Allah wants them to do. All right, so you've heard the famous story of the person who committed one big sin mistake and he was on his way to repent. So the story is that he was met at his death by two groups of angels. One group were the angels of punishment. And they claimed him. He's ours. <laughs> he belongs to us because he made mistakes. And his one mistake puts him over the threshold of Rahmah. So he doesn't belong to you. So the other angels, meaning the angels of Rahmah, they were there too and they were claiming him. So there's a tension there in the world of angels. This one, because he failed, he belongs to us. So we have to punish him. And the other group, no, this one, he belongs to us because his intention was to repent. He had the intention to repent. So anyway, long story short, the angels of Rahmah, they claimed him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgave him. So you can't be that mu'tazili in your approach to human endeavor. People will make mistakes. That's how the world works. Can you see in the government today, Masha? In the world today, right? So many mistakes on the international plane, uh, which causes war and havoc and chaos and bloodshed and all those. so many mistakes. So what are you going to do? Huh? Now you can just convert everybody by force. He said, don't make mistakes. So the Prophet said that if you don't make mistakes and commit sins, Allah will replace you with people who will make mistakes and commit sin and Allah will forgive them. So this perfectionist ideal does not exist. And that's how the Sunnah works. That's how the Sunnah is ruled because they know leaders make mistakes. Whereas the other groups, the Kharijis, and then eventually the Mordas, no, no mistake. You can't afford to have a mistake in any human system because it, rep- it represents the divine. The divine forgives. He forgives whomever he wants. Now, you can correct mistakes and you can reform them, refine them. That's different from the emotion and the psychology of uh, people who want to do things. And then they end up failing because they don't trust anyone to do anything. And then they fail and they fall flat on their faces. And that's the end of their Islam, basically. I mean, don't be too hard on yourselves. It's okay. Take it easy. No, it's not the end of the day. 
You say, okay, let's make mistakes on this side. Not that you, you, you want to promote making mistakes or you want to encourage people making mistakes, but at the macro level, if you want to be a good person who manages and governs and does things with people for people, then it has to be based on this understanding that human frailty is in every human being. Not just the person that you're reprimanding is making mistakes. Every human being has that. But as I said, you do have to correct those mistakes and then you have to move on from those mistakes and so on. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's divine prerogative is that he forgives whomever he wishes. And Muslims must not be so hard on each other that they condemn everybody to hell. The thing of takfir is that we don't like takfir. Nobody as a Muslim should even entertain the idea that they have the prerogative to call somebody else a kafir. That gene should not be there. There must be no inclination to say that this person is a kafir. Because the Prophet came to deliver people from hell into Jannah. And the way some Muslims work is that they want to deliver everybody from Jannah to hell. That's not prophethood. You can't do that. You can't be that hard on people. Why? Because it will come back to haunt you. Then someone will be hard on you and then you'll lose it. You'll just flip. Because your perfectionist ideal is broken. So here, even though the, these people are uh, the munafiqun, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala still gives them this hope. These ayat are for the munafiqun, the hypocrites. Allah is saying, and they know Arabic, they, they're listening to this Quran, he forgives. If you make tawbah, he'll forgive. And some of them did. Um, so in the sifat, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions after this article of Imam, that Allah forgives whomever he wants to, Allah punishes for whomever he wants to. He doesn't say, وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَزِيزًا Just look at how the words of Revelation come. He doesn't say, إِنَّ اللَّهُ عَزِيزًا ذُنْتِخَانًا إِنَّ اللَّهُ he says, He still brings the khufran and the rahmah to override his punishment. He could have ended the ayah and say that he is jabbar, overwhelming, he's dominating, and he can punish, vindicating, but he doesn't do that. He brings the rahmah back into the picture. He brings the khufran, the forgiveness, back into the picture so that they know Allah is not ruthless. You don't want to judge people ruthlessly because then Allah will judge you ruthlessly also as in the story of Abu Bakr, in the story of the Ifq, as you know. Now this has not happened yet. Um, this has happened. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forecasting that these people will say to you that those who were now lagging behind and did not attend the Hudaybiyah uh, with you, then they will say, 
So this is in reference to Khaybar, that Khaybar happened after Hudaybiyah, and it hasn't happened yet while the ayat are being revealed. So the Prophet announced when he went back to Medina, to Hudaybiyah, that we will be going towards Khaybar, and we'll be fighting with the Jews of Khaybar, and nobody can join us except those who are with us at Hudaybiyah. That was the announcement. So nobody who was at Hudaybiyah was allowed to participate in Khaybar, whether they were Muslim or Munafiq, no one. So only that group is now going to be the one that's going to support the Prophet at Khaybar, and that is what happened. But at Khaybar, as you know, the Muslims conquered the fort, and they gained a lot of booty, a lot of wealth, a lot of money, a lot of farms, and a lot of dates, and uh, everything else. Let us now follow you. So the Prophet said, no, you're not following us. They want to change the word of Allah. They want to change the word of Allah. How the interesting discussion. That this now command from the Prophet is not mentioned in the, in the Quran. You can only read this ayah if you know the seerah. If you know hadith, if you don't know hadith, you cannot read this ayah, it's not possible. So in order to read the Quran, you need the seerah, you need the statements of the Prophet because the idea is that leave us so that we can follow you. Where is that mentioned anywhere in the Quran? It's not mentioned. It's mentioned by the Prophet which means that Allah is confirming that there is revelation outside of the Quran. And to that, Allah is saying, They want to change the kalam of Allah, which is the kalam of the Rasul. Whose kalam are they changing? Allah's kalam or the Rasul's kalam? Meaning, it is wahi, both. And that's how you get your two types of wahi. Wahi matlu and wahi ghair matlu, recited wahi, which is the Quran. And non-recited wahi, which is a hadith and the sunnah. That is non-recited, but it's still wahi. So anything that's wahi is kalamullah. That is the, except this kalam of the Quran is recited, and that kalam of Allah is non-recited. He does not speak out of his whim and fancy and desire. It is all pure wahi. That's what Quran says about the Prophet's statements. So the Prophet's statements are also kalam of Allah, except that there are different rulings. This one you can't touch without wudu and ghusl, and that one you may recite and speak without wudu and ghusl. So the, the, the application is different, but the concept is the same. It is still wahi. And there's no mention of that wahi in this wahi. So for those fools who say that there's only Quran, no hadith, how are you going to read this ayah? The only way you can read this ayah if you know wahi, the non-recited wahi, 
which is the hadith of the Prophet So in that sense, that this is the speech of the Rasul, which is the speech of Allah. You say this is kalam of Allah, the speech of Allah, which is represented through the Prophet So that speech and this speech is still conceptually wahi, and that's why we do not differentiate between what the Prophet says and what Allah says. Whoever follows the Rasul, follows Allah. Following the Rasul, those who took bay'ah with you, Allah took bay'ah with them. Allah's hand was over their hands. So this is a representation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the institution of the Prophet sallallahu They are one and the same, basically. Say to them, you'll never follow us, we'll never allow you to follow us. This is up to Khaybar. I mean, after Khaybar, other Muslims were allowed to follow the Prophet. And this is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned this to you before, meaning through the Prophet. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned this. They, in turn, will say to you that you are just jealous of us, meaning that you don't want us to get the, the booty and the good things that are coming from, you know, your battles and so on. The truth is they understand very little. They don't have any understanding per se. Whatever little they do understand is not enough for them to betray Allah and the Rasul, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So this is now the khabar of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the Prophet that this hasn't happened yet. It will happen soon, but it will happen a year later. Meaning this happened after the seventh year. Yeah. Say to those who are lagging behind from those uh, Arab tribes, the Bedouins, that indeed you will be certainly called towards a very aggressive and vicious group of people, that you will be called to fight some very vicious people, not the ones you're fighting at the moment, but in future. So the Mufassirun say this happened after the Prophet left this world. It didn't happen in his lifetime. This, this refers to Musaylama and the people of Yamama, and it refers to the, the wars and the battles that Umar had with the Persians and with the Byzantines. Meaning this is a kind of heralding statements for the Sahaba Abu Bakr and Omar that you will be fighting these people who will be very ruthless and very vicious. The, the people the Prophet fought, they were not this way. They were obviously a fierce enemy, an opponent, but they weren't this vicious. So this referring to the empires, the Persian empires and the Byzantine uh, empires. This happened in Abu Bakr's time. It happened in Umar anhu's time, and then you will fight uh, you will fight them. Until they submit. Until they do what? 
They submit, not accept Islam. Submit either under, uh, they become under the power authority of the Muslims, or they submit to Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So submission is of two types here. One is submission to the Muslim state, officially, and the other is submission to Allah, in which case you are also submitting to the Muslim state. So this is now how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informs the Prophet sallallahu that Hudaybiyyah is such a huge victory for you that we're giving you this ni'mah of expanding your ummah outside of Arabia. Now whether that happens in your life or after your life, that's a different issue. But this is Hudaybiyyah's fruit. All of these conquests are the fruits of Hudaybiyyah. And that's why the Sahaba said, that you assume Fatih Makkah is the victory. We say, no, Hudaybiyah is the victory. Fatih Makkah is the beginning of many victories for the Prophet and Islam. And this eye is forecasting the victories for Muslims who will come later, that they will be now ruling, governing civilizations. Those world civilizations will be under their feet. Tuqatilunahum aw yuslimun. Either they submit, or you will just basically kill them. If they and you people now obey, obey Allah and obey the Khalifa, Allah will give you tremendous, very good ajr and reward, both in this dunya and also in the akhirah. And if they turn away, and if you turn away, as you have turned away before at Hudaybiyah, Allah will punish you very severe punishment. This is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is forecasting that after Hudaybiyah, all the doors of victories will open up and Muslims never lost after Hudaybiyah. This is Allah's fadl on the Prophet and the people who attended and took the pledge, the Bayatul Ridwan, which has been mentioned in the next couple of ayahs, inshallah. However, there are some Muslims who, mashallah, were genuinely handicapped and they had a genuine Islamic excuse. So they did not assign themselves, they didn't uh, volunteer themselves to go into the battle and go to with the Prophet for the Umrah, which never happened, as you know, at Hudaybiyah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then gives us now an exemption. There's now exceptions to the rule here, even in warfare, there are exceptions. So Allah says, لَيْسَ عَلَى الْعَامَى حَرَجٌ وَلَا عَلَى الْعَارَجِ حَرَجٌ وَلَا عَلَى الْمَرِيضِ حَرَجٌ Meaning there is no harm and no bother for those people who are blind. There is no uh, you know, uh, reason to punish anybody who is lame. There's no harm, there's no haraj, there's no offense. Likewise, anyone who's sick, genuinely sick, and he cannot make the journey because his sickness is debilitating him, then he is also pardoned. Meaning these are common sense exceptions. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala endorses these common sense exceptions so that Muslims know that not everybody is going to be available physically. If that's the case, then they'll be pardoned and they'll be forgiven, and they might even get a share of some of the proceeds if they come. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, through his rahmah 
and uh, through his uh, fadl, he's now extending a pardon to those who do not participate, meaning that it's okay if they don't. But if they do, that's even better. And then finally, the greatest reward, whoever obeys Allah and his Rasul, Allah will allow them to enter into these gardens underneath which their rivers flow and they'll be living there in bliss forever, for eternity. And so on. Whoever turns away, Allah will punish him with a very severe and painful punishment. So here, there are things that will happen in this dunya if you participate with the Muslim cause. But this, as I said, at the state level, at the official level. And if you do not, then you'll be punished because you'll be seen as a traitor. Meaning that we don't want traitors in the community. They should be punished and they should be barred from participating in Muslim affairs. In fact, they should be jailed, imprisoned, or whatever it is that the governor and the government wants to do at that time. So that's one punishment in this dunya. The other punishment is eternal. On the day of judgment and after the day of judgment. Now this ayah, and these ayat are very clear in uh, making sure Muslims understand the communal responsibility, that Muslims must think of their communal responsibilities and not live just for their individual responsibility to pray and fast and give zakat and go for hajj. That is what we call fardi, individual. The other is ishtima'i, which is social and communal. So Islam, by definition, is communal. It is not at all private. So we don't believe in private religion. We don't have a private religion. I can just do things in my house and not attain salvation. No, you can't do that, especially if you're male. Even for hajj, you need to be with people. You can't go for hajj alone. Although that might might have happened in COVID. (laughs) Even then, there are a few people there. Enough to call it an ummah, uh, inshallah. So Islam requires that you participate in whatever is needed to keep the ummah alive. If you do not do that, then you're munafiq, basically. You're a hypocrite and you're being very selfish. So we don't breed selfishness through privatizing religion. You can't have a private religion. So it is an organized religion for all of people, all of mankind. It's not a members-only club. You don't get access because you are privileged. You get access because you're a human being, basically. For that, you have to return the favor to all human beings. Now, since Islam opens its doors to every human being, Muslims must do the same thing. They must open their doors to all human beings. They can't, simply can't think individualistically, which is, unfortunately, the new norm over the past century at least, that religion has to be private. Don't bother the people. So you say, no, bother the people. That's what your religion says. <laughs> bother people. Tell them this is right and this is wrong. That's what your religion says to you. If you fail, then that's on you. That's not the failure of Islam. The failure of Islam is in the failure of Muslims. If Muslims fail, then Allah will replace them with other people who will not fail. 
So in this, mashallah, society, Allah keep us all with afia and barakah and everything else that goes along with. But we cannot assume to live a life of pure luxury and uh, allow others to stay hungry. That's not a believer. A believer doesn't do that. We can't allow people to suffer and not have a job. And we have many jobs. And so there has to be a social agenda. Usually it's done, I say, Darul Islam. And that's why Darul Islam makes a difference. That the Muslim government should do this, or take care of it. And so in non-Muslim countries, you can organize a few things, but you won't be united on these things that you want to do. And you shouldn't blame others for not joining you. If you're not good enough to join, then that's your fault. It's not their fault. Make your program and project so good that others want to join. If others don't join, then that's on you. In non-Muslim countries, there's no wilaya of the ummah upon the ummah. Since there's no wilaya, you have to do things in a, in a way that you're trying. You can help people, feed people, and you can uh, treat people, give them some you know, medicine as groups. So there you can have a group understanding of the ummah. And every effort in kindness is now part of the ummah. So you should not dismiss other people's efforts in the community simply because you disagree with them. You never know who's benefiting from that group. Now, their methodology may be somewhat sometimes un-Islamic or their niya may not be the best. But at least as a community, we need everybody to participate. It's like a pizza. In a Muslim country, there's no pizza. You just do everything. None of the pizza, slices of pizza. So whichever slice of pizza any Muslim gets in this country is rahmah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if he's getting now some Islam from here, some Islam from there, that's fine. We should not try to be the Pied Piper of all Muslims in this country. Dar Qasim is not for everybody, as you know. They can go elsewhere. This is not your cup of tea, it's not your cup of tea. We're not going to come after you and beg you, join us. But it serves a purpose for some people. Likewise, other organizations, they serve purposes for other people. In that sense, this is a collective effort of all the efforts in the country. On that concept, you should be united. You don't have to join every group to be united. You should be united on the idea that every Muslim organization, if they have ikhlas and they're doing things somewhat okay, let them be, encourage them, it's okay. You're not going to achieve perfection. Especially the idea that you're in a non-Muslim country itself is imperfection. <laughs> you already compromised because you're in a non-Muslim country. So don't expect perfection in a, Muslim, a non-Muslim country. It's never going to happen until, inshallah, one day they all become Muslim. If they do, that's great. MashaAllah. Yeah. So we have to be careful how we uh, you know, see other groups, whatever groups they are. So every... Group has its now purposes and objective. Hopefully most groups are sincere and dedicated and they have the right methodology. If they don't, then our job is nasiha. Our job is to advise them. But you can't advise everybody. So you do something with one group and that's it. That's your responsibility. Don't try to change the whole ummah. It won't work. You'll fail miserably. You won't outlast the ummah, trust me. So go and do things in a group that are doing something for the sake of Allah. Whichever group it is, we don't care which group it is. 
What I'm saying is that we should not be so idealist. That's the problem with Muslim leadership in this country, so naive, because they don't read the seerah, they don't read the sunnah, they don't read the Quran. You cannot be the Pied Piper of every Muslim in this country simply because you have a good organization. And don't assume everybody will come to you. Some people will come to you. Then focus on that. Make sure you have a purpose. Then stick to the purpose, stick to your agenda, and that's it. Don't try to have now 6,000, 60,000, 600 wings of Jibreel. Right? You don't have any wing. You can barely walk, never mind fly. So this idealism that has creeped in from the 60s in this country, that one organization must represent the whole ummah, that's just pathetic. It's not humanly possible. We can't even get together on one Eid. And maybe we shouldn't get together on one Eid. It kind of makes fun. It's fun to have this kind of diversity in the ummah. I'm not saying it's an ideal. I'm just saying that we, we have to be very careful how we now don't overestimate our abilities. This is our ability, is to do this. That's it. Don't overextend your ideas and ideals so that you want to do everything for everybody. It won't work. You'll fail, as you'll fall flat on your face, and then... God forbid, you might just end up doing nothing, not even your salat, because you failed, and the failure is on you. The idea that all Muslims should be united, that's good. We can make dua for it. But it's, it's going to take much more than one organization to do all the work the ummah needs in this country. One group can't do it. It's not possible. Anyway, this Allah's fadl for Muslims in non-Muslim countries, and we should respect that inability. That's part of our perfection. So we do what we can, and we make dua for the rest, inshallah. Then you'll cover the whole pizza, every slice we take. Otherwise, it's not, yeah. Where we failed in leadership is this, that we, we want everyone to jump onto every bandwagon. So one person comes in Jumai and says, you all must do this. And say, yes, okay, we'll help you as much as we can. But we can't join you in your effort because we're doing other things. So the ulama have said, if one person is doing something which is good for Allah and the Rasul, it is haram for you to take him away from that effort. That's the fatwa. It is haram for you to take away a person who's doing something, remove him from there, and ask him to join you. It is haram. You know why? Because he won't do either then. Right? You're greedy. Do what you can. Stay in your lane. Do what you can. That's all you can do. And if you do anything more than that, as I said, you'll end up failing miserably. But there has to be a communal effort somewhere that you must think of the ummah as a whole. That's a unity. And number two, you must do something that warrants you to say, I'm doing something for the ummah. It may just be volunteering somewhere. As simple as that. 
And it might be that you're organizing and you're directing and you're helping and you're teaching and you're learning and you're doing other things and spreading the khair. So this country is huge and, you know, one simple uh, organization is not going to cure all the ills of the ummah in this country. It won't happen. A smaller country, maybe. Maybe a small island. That might happen. But in any, any uh, country that is now here on the planet, we must do what we can and do it in the best way we can. So you must perfect that, what it is you're doing. You like, just like you cannot expect that the Chicago, mashallah, communities get together and have one massive masjid and do salat all the time at the same time in total uh, uniformity, which is ridiculous. That's not even a fantasy. <laughs> you can have this gigantic masjid which now holds how many thousand Muslims we have here? 200,000, 300,000. A place that big that holds now 400,000 Muslims and they all do salat every day at the same time in uniformity. Is that your sense of unity? Uh, that's stupid. So what, even the Prophet didn't say to every Sahabi, come and do salat in my, in my masjid. Everybody did their salat where they were. So that uniformity is very different from unity. Unity is in the concept. Unity is in the understanding that we do our, these obligations the way we can do, when we can do it, according to our capacity, our capabilities, and our abilities. But everybody can do what they do. In their own way. That is why you have diversity. Instead of uniformity, you have diversity. So you want to do it this way, that's fine, Bismillah. And in the U.S., mashallah, as you know, in certain cities and places, they have churches on every corner. And not one of them are the same as the other. So many denominations in Christianity. They all have their own independent space and places of worship. And they'll, they find, they're fine. They live with it. They don't say, let's all be united as Christians and do it one way. Now, we have unity in our aqidah. Where we are united is in our aqidah. In the five pillars, we're united. We're united in iman, imaniyat. We're united in the tenets of Islam and the, uh, the beliefs and our theology. But on the ground, there's diversity. As long as they're all doing their five pillars and they're staying away from haram and they're doing halal, then that's united. That is unity. It's uniformity and unity are two different things. So here we see that the Prophet is being informed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that your ummah will succeed because they have taken a pledge with you, the pledge at Hudaybiyah. And Hudaybiyah is the Final victory for the Prophet ﷺ based on this surah. Anyway, we make dua Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve us, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keep us in the deen, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to die with iman and be resurrected with iman, inshallah. Ameen, ya Rabbil Alameen, wa sallallahu ta'ala al-khayl khilq, Muhammadin wa alihi wa sahabihi ajma'in, bi rahmatik, ya Rabbil Alameen, wa alhamdulillah.